This is Quiet Revolutionaries, a podcast based on my book about a little-known group of activists in the mid-20th century, and how they helped to shape the idea of equal partnership and relationships. I'm Dr Sharon Thompson, a law lecturer at Cardiff University, where over the course of several years I decided to take a different look at how law came to be as we know it. And I delved into the stories of a group of women and men known as the Married Women's Association. Curious to learn how these individuals came together to fight for equal partnership in marriage and to save isolated women from impoverishment by an indifferent legal system. In this podcast series, I explore the intriguing and sometimes shocking story of the Married Women's Association. I'll be going back in history to uncover how this group's failed attempts at reform created unexpected ripples connect to fundamental principles of equality today. This is episode four. There have been moments when researching this story that I thought about my own family. When my auntie Anne died, she left me her jewellery box. It's one of my favourite things, full of treasure, full of history, And I've learned things about her from it that I never knew. For example, from a brooch that she worked for the Women's Voluntary Service during the Second World War. The Women's Voluntary Service was set up in 1938 as a housewife's service, for many in this organisation were housewives. Women in this organisation would have had numerous duties, evacuating civilians, providing food and clothing during the Blitz, and helping with the collection of national savings. This last duty regarding national savings is particularly interesting. During the war, the savings movement was campaigning to persuade individuals to purchase savings certificates in support of the war effort. Housewives were recruiting other housewives to invest in the war effort because purchasing these certificates would provide money up front to the government to finance military operations. But it would also enable the investors to make long-term investments in the process. So it makes sense that housewives would be an integral part of this campaign for during the 1940s and 50s, the wife was often the person responsible for managing the household budget. She'd be given a housekeeping allowance by her husband from which she would manage bills and other outgoings, buying groceries, clothes and anything the family needed. The management of money was often emphasised by Married Women's Association's President Edith Summerskill in Parliament. As her grandson Ben Summerskill has said. Her maiden speech in 1938 pointed out that in her view there were tens of millions of women around the country as housewives. Again, an old-fashioned description, but her view was there were tens of millions of women around the country as housewives who were themselves acting as chancellors of the exchequer in their own household and therefore male chancellors of the Exchequer shouldn't assume that women had no idea how to balance the books. The problem was, however, that in spite of all her work, the housewife had no legal right in this housekeeping money. And so during the war, the national savings movement was encouraging housewives to use housekeeping money to buy savings certificates without ever making it clear that they're accumulating savings to which they had no actual legal right. Women in the same organisation as my Auntie Anne, and perhaps even my aunt herself, were propagating the myth that housewives could benefit from prudently investing in saving money left over from the housekeeping allowance. 
and it's likely that they did so unknowingly, as polls carried out at the time suggested that married women thought this money belonged to them, and they often learned to their detriment that it did not. In this episode, I'm going to focus on one woman who lost her case in relation to housekeeping savings, Mrs Blackwell. This is because her individual story became incredibly powerful. It represented the experiences of many married women just like her and exposed the injustice of the law. It became the Married Women's Association's most effective propaganda tool. So who was Mrs Dorothy Blackwell? Well, not much is known about her, or her husband John, or why their marriage broke down. But the facts suggest that Dorothy Blackwell had planned to leave her husband for some time. As a housewife, married in 1925, with a child, no independent income, leaving a marriage wasn't straightforward. So Dorothy Blackwell decided that first she'd need some degree of economic independence for herself and her son. Dorothy Blackwell's home belonged to her husband, and even though she claimed to have contributed to the purchase of the house, her name wasn't on the deeds. She had no financial independence. So, in 1936, Dorothy Blackwell began taking in lodgers. This brought additional income into the household to help pay off the mortgage and other bills. During this time, Dorothy's husband, John, also gave her money for housekeeping. Some of this money was saved in a bank account that she had with the co-op. In 1941, Dorothy Blackwell left her husband and wrote to him saying she didn't want to live with him again. She took the money saved in her co-op society account, which amounted to £103.10 shillings with dividends and interest. Her husband, John, brought action in a county court to recover this money and won. So even though Dorothy Blackwell argued that the savings weren't only comprised of housekeeping savings, the court treated it very simply as money the husband had given to her, which therefore belonged to the husband. Yes, she brought in lodgers. Yes, she worked hard to contribute to the mortgage. But the lodgers were staying in a house owned by her husband, not by her. Dorothy Blackwell was her husband's agent, and so she had no rights in property law terms. The Married Women's Association funded Dorothy Blackwell's appeal. The members explained their rationale for taking on her case in their 1944 annual report. They said, We fought the Blackwell case on a point of law and in order to draw the attention of Parliament and the public to the serf-like position of housewives. Dorothy Blackwell was represented by a team of female lawyers. Carrie Morrison, the first female solicitor, and barristers Constance Colwell and Knight Dix. This was extraordinary given there were so few female lawyers in the early 1940s. It's important to note, but the courts didn't, that the £103.10 shilling successfully claimed by John Blackwell was Dorothy Blackwell's source of economic independence. She wasn't legally separated from her husband and wasn't paid any maintenance by him either. So she was left with nothing. So I've lost my money and that is the law as far as wives are concerned. I've had a hard life 
scraping and stinting to save money. I saved it in small amounts. <laughs> but had I my time over again, I'd be a spendthrift. I'd spend every penny and have a good time. It doesn't pay a housewife to be thrifty. My advice to housewives is not to save money, but spend it. It's also shocking to hear the reasoning of some of the judges in the Blackwell case. Lord Justice Goddard, for instance, said, If women were permitted to save out their housekeeping allowance and then keep the proceeds, women would be tempted to give their husbands tinned meat rather than roast meat. He also thought, It was a most astonishing proposition that the wife can spend as little as she likes and save the rest. And it would be utterly unfair to the poor husband who has some rights though not many I'd allow. In other words, housewives should be denied rights and property, not only because of precedent, but more insidiously because they couldn't be trusted to administer the money for the good of the family. The judicial attitude also provided further evidence of the intransigence of the law. The judges in Blackwell argued, We cannot upset law which has been settled many years. Blackwell is therefore not just an example of how the grip of precedent historically operated against women. The injustice of this case is compounded by judicial bias from judges who couldn't empathise with the harsh legal consequences faced by women like Dorothy Blackwell. The Blackwell case demonstrated how the law had failed married women. Even when Dorothy Blackwell enabled the mortgage on her home to be repaid through her management of household finances, and work taking in lodgers, that home couldn't belong to her unless she was named on the deeds, and wives rarely were. So in making these contributions, she was acting as her husband's agent and nothing more. The absurdity of strict separation of property in this instance wasn't lost on Mrs Blackwell's lawyers, with her counsel arguing that the law had left her worse off than a paid housekeeper. But maybe the most shocking aspect of Dorothy Blackwell's case was that the hardship she experienced was by no means exceptional. After Blackwell, the Married Women's Association claimed to be receiving 40 to 50 letters a day from women in similar situations. As Ada Summerskill observed, different versions of the Blackwell case appeared in newspapers every day whereby women were being left penniless after discovering that the housekeeping money they'd saved was in fact legally owned by their husbands. And the hardship experienced by Dorothy Blackwell after she lost her case was striking. Separated but not divorced, she was left with no money of her own. And later, Ada Summerskill wrote in her memoirs about what became of her. Mrs Blackwell, after 16 years of unremitting toil on behalf of her family, was not entitled to a penny for her services. She was a pathetic little figure in her basement room when I visited her in London. She was helpless and hopeless, a victim of a legal system which still, in the 20th century, treats the wife as a chattel of her husband. The Married Women's Association worked hard to ensure her plight made a mark in the press and the Blackwell case was front page news. They were seeking to challenge the court's narrow view of wives as mere agents of their husband's money, as Dorothy Blackwell said of her case. I claim that the money belongs to me because I had to work hard in the home for it. 
He never made me any separate allowance. Therefore, Blackwell was not just a case about housekeeping savings for the Married Women's Association. It was about the broader need to value women's work in the home. Because Dorothy Blackwell wasn't divorced and therefore wasn't able to access maintenance, her case provided strong justification for the association's demands for equal partnership legislation, which sought to provide married women with property rights during marriage. When the Married Women's Association applied to the House of Lords Appeal Committee to take the Blackwell case further, their application wasn't granted. So, having tried unsuccessfully to push for change in the courts, it had become apparent to the Married Women's Association members that they couldn't pursue reform through judicial process alone. But out of this failure, the Married Women's Association launched the biggest campaign of its history. Their annual report in 1944 described a swell in numbers. We can now claim to be a national movement spread all over Britain with an appreciable public support for our work. A large measure of our success is due to the publicity afforded us by the Blackwell case. This was because the Married Women's Association pursued a strategy of channeling public outrage into propaganda and campaigns for reform. The Married Women's Association wanted to make it clear that the issue of housekeeping savings was symptomatic of widespread, inbuilt inequality in the law of marriage. And so an important part of their activism was to make women aware of how the law affected them and to register their indignation over this. And they used the press effectively too, inviting journalists to their meetings and plans for their protests with prominent members like Ada Summerskill talking about how the Blackwell case had made a mockery of the marriage vows. When the Married Women's Association appealed for financial contributions, married women reportedly hauled in silver notes, with many admitting, ironically, that they were taking it from the housekeeping money. The campaign also included petitioning Parliament and collecting signatures, as the following letter by Edith Summerskill sent out to members shows. The time has arrived when we must take further action if we are to secure justice for the housewife in the post-war world. Will you, therefore, help me by obtaining as many signatures and addresses as possible, men, women, married or single, on the enclosed petition which I propose to present to Parliament? Please enlist the help of your friends and sympathisers as this is urgent and important. Try to get forms filled in by workers in factories, shops and offices and women's societies. Call it as many houses as possible. I'm quite sure that you will find the housewife only too ready to cooperate and remember that you will be furthering the cause of women throughout the country. Ask the editor of your local paper to write a story and to include your own name and address for further information. Support for reform seemingly was widespread. A Gallup poll had revealed that 75% of respondents were in favour of housewives having a legal right to housekeeping savings. And the Married Women's Association interpreted this as a public awakening to the need for legal reform and that something was wrong with the economic status of the 10 million homemakers of Great Britain. Next, members organised a deputation to the Home Office, which was ostensibly unsuccessful, with the Attorney General Donald Somerville refusing to undertake to introduce legislative reform, because... It would be wrong and contrary to the intentions of the husband. 
However, the internal files of the Lord Chancellor's office reveal that the Married Women's Association weren't ignored entirely. The Lord Chancellor's office was forced to take notice of the association's campaign because, as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it was publicising criticism of the National Savings Movement. In raising awareness of the Blackwell campaign, the Married Women's Association was actively discouraging housewives from investing in savings certificates that would help fund the war effort. As Married Women's Association member Anne Fraser wrote to the National Savings Committee, Many housewives now have a powerful incentive to spend every penny on housekeeping money, if not on household necessities, then on themselves. Some letters in the Lord Chancellor's office files dismissed Married Women's Association propaganda, with Permanent Secretary Claude Schuster telling the Lord Chancellor that The feminists are barking up the wrong tree. A memo to the Lord Chancellor further stated Married women more than anyone else realise how inextricably the future of the home depends upon the future of the country. We cannot believe that housewives will be influenced by the recent decision of the Court of Appeal to withhold the support of their savings from the war effort at this critical moment when husbands and sons are giving their lives to save their homes. Despite this brusque reaction, it seems unlikely that the Lord Chancellor's office would have carried out the extensive research it did into married women's property reform had it not felt compelled to take the Married Women's Association's campaign seriously. Inquiries were made into the law in France. Dozens of letters set out detailed arguments for reform, and meetings were held to discuss the practicalities of legislation. Over time, Claude Schuster appeared to move from outright opposition to reform towards a position of ambivalence. The more I think about the thing, the more puzzled I am and the more tangled appears to me to be the path before us. So, in the end, the Married Women's Association had succeeded in forcing the government to pay attention to the economic consequences of marriage for women. Outside of the courtroom and on the ground, Blackwell had much more significance for family law reform. Dorothy Blackwell's story embodied many of the inequalities between husband and wife that the Married Women's Association sought to expose, so could be used to garner sympathy for the economic vulnerability of housewives more generally. It's also important that the association help make visible the experiences of Dorothy Blackwell and other subjugated women of the 1940s. Too often, the words of women suffering from the harsh consequences of law were and are not recorded. But thanks to the Married Women's Association and the press contacts it cultivated, we do know what Dorothy Blackwell made of her case. The case of Blackwell and Blackwell exemplifies how feminist legal history can be used to confront assumptions that justice is always blind and law is always objective in the courtroom. Blackwell is also a reminder of how controversial seemingly small issues can be, such as the ownership of housekeeping savings. Indeed, it's an understatement to say that finding a solution to this issue was divisive within the Married Women's Association, for it was, at least ostensibly, what broke the association apart, as I'll explore in the next episode. 
Thank you for listening to Quiet Revolutionaries, presented and written by me, Sharon Thompson, produced by Ed Townend, and with voice acting by Lynn Hoare and Russell Sandberg. Special thanks to the Socio-Legal Studies Association for funding this project, the Women's Library, the National Archives, and all of the wonderful people who agreed to be interviewed about the Married Women's Association. For further information, visit marriedwomensassociation.co.uk where you can find photos of the people mentioned in this podcast and documents from the archives. My book, Quiet Revolutionaries, which includes a foreword written by Lady Hale, is out now.